This is Intune, the in-series podcast, opening up to you your own in-series opera and more, an oasis of intimate, innovative, and inspiring ideas through music, theater, art, and opera. This is an in-depth, in-the-director's salon episode with audio from our director's salon for La Plume at the Wall, which was held last night, March 11th, with a full house at the Mexican Cultural Institute on 16th Street here in Washington, D.C., our panelists were Dr. Christine Arce from the University of Miami, Dr. Manuel Cuillar from George Washington University, Dr. Annie Dini Morales, who of course is the author uh, and brain behind La Paloma at the Wall, composer, Mexican composer Ulises Eliseo, and artists from the Latin American Youth Center, Luis Peralta and Sarah Kraft, who are at this very minute working with students from the Latin American Youth Center to design and build a 25-foot replica of the border wall with mural art of their own imagination and their own immigrant experiences. The program was about an hour in length and featured not only a fascinating discussion of art, culture, and politics at the U.S.-Mexican border, what it means to be building a wall on stage and making a piece about the border wall at this time. It also featured performances by Elizabeth Mondragon and Mia Rojas. Give a listen and come out for the performances March 23rd through the 31st at Gala Hispanic Theater. Good evening, I'm Timothy Nelson, Artistic Director of the In-Series, and uh, it's such a pleasure to welcome such a big crowd here tonight. This is amazing. Uh, I want to give a special thank you to Alberto Fierro, Director of the Institute, and to the staff of the Institute for uh, being willing to be partners on, on this uh, salon tonight and on the production in general. We're so fortunate to have uh, cultural organizations like the Institute in the city to help support our uh, innovative explorations of, of trans-cultural uh, uh, events like this. Um, this is our fifth uh, director salon of the of the year, and as many of you know, we reformatted the salons this year to be uh, community conversations with artists, but also with scholars and thinkers from diverse and divergent uh, backgrounds and experiences. The idea being that through conversation, we can reveal the interconnectedness of the work that we do, and in that way, also reveal how opera. Uh, Opera theater can be central to, to our everyday lives. Um, this year I've struggled. Um, if, if I have a lot of time to explain my vision, I can do that. I can speak for days about it and be very verbose. But if I have to be very concise, I find it very difficult to describe and put into words my vision for the in-series. And what I've landed upon uh, is a vision that is using um, the in-series as a, the in-series being uniquely positioned to radically change perceptions of the who, what, where, and why of opera. And what I mean by that is changing ideas about who gets to make opera and for whom opera's made, um, changing ideas about what type of performances get to constitute opera. We're, of course, a company that does a lot of, <laughs> we're a company that does a lot of um, genre-breaking work and work that it folds in other cultural, musical, dramatic traditions. Um, changing where opera takes place, that opera can take place in a house, it can take place in a hundred seat theater, it can take place in a church, uh, and most importantly, changing the why of opera, why opera matters. And this production in particular, I think, speaks to trying to reframe opera as a place where the serious issues of the day uh, can take place, and I'm, I'm particularly proud to be able to do that. to be a part of this from the beginning when Anna first approached me, she said, um, I've been asked to adapt a sexual into the border. What do you think? And I said, amazing. I think that's incredibly radical, incredibly innovative. I'm so grateful. 
attend, but entertaining all my suggestions. And so she's, she asked me sort of read through the libretto at several moments. And, and in my haste, I read through it. And every time I realized some of the questions posed by Tim to us became incredibly relevant. Why and for whom and what you just mentioned is important. Opera is not necessarily conceived of as a genre that's relevant for people of color and, and less for the border. So to bring a 19th century beloved Sarsuela to the U.S.-Mexican border in you know, today's moment, today's political, um, historical um, moment is, is not just a, a movement, a trans-diachronic movement between 19th century genre plopped onto the border, but rather a real dialogue, a conversation between the problems that existed in 19th century Spain and what she brings to, and I'm sure if you listen to her podcast, she talks a lot about the, um, the sort of social, cultural, historical moment of Spain at that precise, when the, when the opera was written, and what it means now to be um, a border resident, what it means now to be a migrant, what it means now to um, participate in different and diverse popular cultural genres. And so why I think I was asked is because of my particular expertise, some of the comments that I made um, with regard to the um, adaptation of the libretto had to do with the incorporation of um, traditional non-talkness musical genres, one of which I insisted, I said, you need to put son jarocho in there. And so I'm not sure if you guys know precisely what that is, but I've been asked to talk a little bit about it, and it's a genre that um, Antonio Garcia de Leon called an Afro-Andalusian genre, and it has over 400 years of tradition, and it might be emblematized for you as La Bamba. You know, Richie Valens is La Bamba, so I think everyone pretty much knows La Bamba, but nobody knows the history behind La Bamba, and there's a rich um, trans-oceanic, trans-continental um, history behind that. It has to do with conflict, with rebellion, and with the African presence in Mexico and in Spain and across the Mediterranean. So um, the music itself is a folk music that today has been resuscitated as a counter-hegemonic, counter-cultural sort of genre of choice because you can play two or three chords and participate. So like Luis was talking about with you know, the youth being able to access via, via their art, um, Son Jarocho is a very democratic musical genre, which is sort of the opposite of opera. You know, you need extreme training to be able to participate and even appreciate the opera. So the fact that these incredible, what you call diverse and divergences are happening in one piece and that Anadina made it happen and I got to read is extraordinary. So um, that's my long-winded way of saying why I think I'm here and I'm happy to talk about anything else that emerges from, from these brief questions. And I just want to share with you uh, why I'm here. So I've always danced. I danced in Mexico in the rural, um, in northern um, Chihuahua, in rural community, and then I danced when I moved to California. So I've always been dancing, and it's always meant different things to dance the nation. And so part of my work has to do with, with thinking about rehearsing different ideas, embodying them, putting them to practice. That's what I do as a teacher. That's, that's what I do as a professor. I teach my students to rehearse their ideas. Um, um, but I'm also a dancer, and I've been doing this for for like 20 years. And when I came to DC, this dancing allowed me to create community. The way we're creating community here through dance and music, and I think creating community through bringing bodies together 
uh, allows us to think of knowledge, knowledge production, knowledge, knowledge circulation in different ways. And I think um, this is what La Verbena, um, La Paloma, the wall based on La Verbena La Paloma is allowing us to do, to think of, uh, to think of dance and music at different, at di as different forms of creating community, but also of thinking through different ideas um, that are very relevant for our communities in DC, particularly, especially thinking about one of the main characters, uh, Paloma, as a Central American Mayor woman. And her story allows us to think what it means to live transnational lives. And dancing also allows us to think about what process borders in addition to bodies and materials, is also this sort of very immaterial products or art forms um, that, can all be, that are material ones like music and dance, because if I do this, you hear it, and you hear a rhythm, and you can feel something through it. I'm amazed by that, right? And we bring that knowledge through our bodies. Dance has also allowed me to think about the ways in which um, we always approach, any, approach anything that we do with our with experience that is lodged in our bodies. So as you can hear, I'm obsessed with thinking about what body and what uh, movement allows us to do and how we can think of it as a way of expanding uh, what we teach at universities, what we teach in high schools. Um, and I think uh, this particular project and the reason why I'm here, not only uh, as someone who, had, who studies Mexican culture production and teaches about Latinx communities locally, but also as a member of this community. And, um, and here you can trace the genealogy of how we, our bodies come together to produce art through visual culture, uh, through the experience of like, Son Farocho, through dancing the Son Farocho, which is what I'll be doing once you come see the Paloma de Wall, and also to translation. Right? How is it that, what, what's translated, what, what can be translated, and I'm super happy to be part of translating ideas, bodies, and creativity.
was that the work itself, even though it's a sarsuela, which is part of a género chico and is usually considered a very light genre within the repertoire of operettas and operas, that even though it's a género chico, it is filled with wounds. And so as you start to unpack this work, um, I unpacked it in, in the language sense of the work because I adapted the libretto. Um, as, I, as I began to work on this, um, I discovered many wounds in the work itself, in the libretto, as well as in the musical, in the musical score. Um, one of those is, for example, that La Verbena de la Paloma is actually a festival that began in the 18th century, and the festival is dedicated to the Virgin of Solitude, which was found on Calle de la Paloma in Madrid, and it was found in the trash, and someone took this Virgin of Solitude out of the trash, and she started to produce miracles. And so I thought, well, who is the Virgin of Solitude? She is Mary, it's the story of the Virgin Mary right after her son is killed. And she goes to a cave because she just wants to be alone. And so I thought, oh my gosh, this is the first wound of this, of this work. It's, it's the story of a woman whose child is taken away by, by state, by government, and she's mourning this loss. Um, the second wound that I found in the work was the story of Susana and the Elders, and the two young characters are called Susana and Casta. And so I looked into the history of this story, which is a story from the Jewish Bible, and it's an apocryphal story. And um, this is the story of a woman who is raped by, or who is, who is attempted to be raped. She's threatened by two elder judges, and they tell her, if you don't, if you don't sleep with us both, we're going to put, we're going to accuse you of adultery for which you'll be put to death. So I was fascinated by this story, which occurs um, in a moment of the displacement and the enslavement of the Jews. And this story is adapted by Handel and his oratorio called Susanna in 1749. The libretto was written by a Sephardic Jew called Moses Mendes. So the libretto of, of um, Handel's work called Susanna is written by a Sephardic Jew. So these, these are stories that have many wounds that have to do with borders and relationships between mothers and states that displace or take away children from mothers. Um, they're stories of languages that have been folded and folded and folded over one upon the other, um, telling the same stories of mourning and loss. They're stories about people who are forced to move. At the time in Madrid, in 1894, the population, even though this the Sarsuela form was taken up by Franco in the 1930s as a form that was of Madrid and centralized a certain type of government because Franco really wanted to centralize the Spanish government um, during his dictatorship. So this is a form that was taken up by Franco, but really during that period in Madrid when it was written, it was a period of great displacement within Spain itself. So many of the people who would have seen this original Sarsuela actually weren't from Madrid. And one of those characters is the character um, of the gypsy who sings this gorgeous song um, called Inchiglana Me Crie, which is about how she's from Andalusia and how um, she's basically displaced and she says, go and find me on the road. Um, you, you won't find me at home. So there's that figure of the gypsy that doesn't have a name in the original text. And she becomes our paloma in, in the adaptation, who's a woman from Guatemala. As I was working on this adaptation, I realized that we needed a Mexican composer to adapt this music. And so I knew Ulises Eliseo, and, and I invited him to um, take on this great 
task of adapting this beautiful work, and, and he's been done a tremendous job doing that. Um, throughout the writing process, I spoke often with Ulises, asking for his advice, for his input, and one of the most important suggestions was that Paloma, originally I had her coming from Oaxaca, and he said, why don't you have Paloma come from Guatemala? Because um, I had read many um, testimonies about, about people's passage um, through Mexico, and it, there was one in particular of a woman who passed through Tenosique, which is in the um, state of Tabasco, and then goes through up through Tamaulipas and ends up in the McAllen um, uh, center, border center in, in Texas. And so um, that was a story that particularly struck me. And 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 Lisa said you should have um, her come from from Guatemala. And so that's how the character of Paloma emerged. Then I also also touched base with Timothy and, and Chrissy um, constantly about different parts of Loretto. And um, and it's a huge pleasure to be here with Sara and Luis for doing this tremendous work at the Latin American Youth Center. And of course with Ulises, who's the other hand of this of this work. Um, and so, so that's why I'm here. <laughs> Thank you. Um, well, um, last year I met Anna, and uh, well, being really concise, she's the reason I'm here. <laughs> but, uh, um, we actually met uh, the Ring of Antango that was down in Washington, D.C. And uh, that was a really interesting experience for me because uh, although I've actually incorporated some of the Son Jarocho's rhythms in my work, actually I have one orchestral piece that has uh, what is made of mainly of that rhythm, um, I hadn't actually played any uh, Son Jarocho instrument or been in an actual Fandango. So, uh, uh, during that day, I, uh, I think Chrissy, oh, well, I met Chrissy as well, and she uh, let me harana, uh, <laughs> and I learned a few of the chords there. And it was really, really fun to just be in the, I guess it was like the plaza, and, and play for three hours, like, uh, yeah, it was like four chords, five chords, but everybody was happy and just feeling the party, feeling the vibe. And, um, and then, well, Anna told me about this uh, project, and how um, they wanted to reinterpret uh, the Sarsola de la Paloma. And then we started talking about it and how we could incorporate the Son Carocho. And, um, and then uh, we, we talked extensively about the story and how the characters developed. Um, but also, I mean, for me, um, I'm, I'm going to be very blunt. I think um, a wall is a scar, of the, a scar on the face of the earth. Um, and uh, I, I think. Well, I, I would like it to not be there, but uh, part of it is already there. And, it, and divisions in humanity have, have probably have existed since since we are Homo sapiens sapiens or even before. So uh, this this is part of uh, I guess like a way to 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 let all of this. Um, To, to, to express all of at least what I'm feeling uh, in a positive artistic way and uh, uh, and well uh, more more perceptive with the music uh, it, it has actually been a very uh, titanic job because uh, as Chrissy said opera is like 
very complex, and some that I choose very simple. And also, I incorporated my own background, which uh, I'll just give you an example. Part of the instrumentation uh, has the harana from some that has an electric guitar, uh, has a violin, double bass, um, um, piano. So, so it's 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 really uh, I don't know if. Maybe, but I don't know of any work that has this particular instrumentation, and uh, uh, it's it, I, I I think it's um, it's 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 gonna be a, a, a new <laughs> even though it, it's based on Asasola from the 19th century, um, it's gonna be very very different, and I think in a, in a good way. Um, and also, I wanted to represent everything that Anna in the script in, in a musical way. So, um, yeah. <laughs> Hi, uh, my name is Sarah. Thank you everybody for being here and for hosting us. Um, I got involved in this project through Caro when she approached the Latin American Youth Center where I teach. Um, so I've taught classes on arts and activism, street art, um, clothing making, and I just love to share the skills that I was fortunate enough to learn in art school with the youth and with my community. So when Kata approached us and said that her main concern was getting the youth's voices out, that just sold me on the project immediately. Um, I think that people can say, you know, um, that art you know, speaks for itself, it speaks the truth, and that's absolutely true. But I also believe that you need some skills to be able to get that point across. So I love just to offer my skills and teach people techniques so they can feel confident um, when they're speaking their truth. Thank you, guys. Uh, I want to take a moment just to, as a room, collectively marvel at what what an organic and marvelous process it is um, for East Park to get made. This project began, it's, if, you, if you look at the news, for those of you that show the radio, when, when you think that we, we started planning it about a month ago because it's so topical. This, pro this project started actually 15 years ago. I heard a story on NPR about the place on the U.S. Mexican border where families can meet once a week and do Monday things that any other family can do anytime they want to, to see a new baby, to, to say, to pray together, to have a picnic together. And being 21, 22, thinking I knew everything, I wrote the artistic director of Chicago Opera Theater and said, you should write an opera, you should commission an opera based on, on this sort of street scenes at the border. Never got reply, not surprised. <laughs> um, and it, then it took, of course, Carla Pugna saying, you, you need to do it in the Roma, and me not know what to do with it, but thinking maybe this is the opportunity, finally, to do a, to do a piece about the order. Taking that to Anna, Anna already knowing Chrissy, um, and then connecting with Manuel, and then introducing us to, to Ulises, and then this idea that if we're going to build a wall in 2019, who builds that wall, and who designs it, and who puts the art on it matters. You can't just do that in scene shop. So wanting to involve an outreach component, um, it, it, I constantly marvel at what it is that um, how Margaret comes together. I had no idea when we started talking. No idea. We thought I thought it would be in Spanish first of all. Um, no idea about the Susanna connection. Um, the idea, and I think this is one of Anna's most brilliant masterstrokes. This idea of turning the gypsy character into a migrant woman who becomes the centerpiece of the whole thing. In the original, she's hardly in it at all. What you did mention, of course, that the piece she sings 
is also a dodge, um, which, which is not coincidence at all, of course. Um, now, because I'm an artistic director, we had a show to put on in two weeks. I promised our director, Nick Olcott, that he could have uh, singers uh, before the end of the evening in rehearsal. So I'm wondering if Anna could take a moment to introduce the first scene and to talk about Paloma, and then Elizabeth Mondragon and I will, will give a musical rendering of that first scene. Okay, so in this first scene, um, Paloma is with the translator and a border patrol officer, and she's looking for her, her daughter, who has um, been separated from her, and um, she can't be found on any list. And so these lists are mismatched, and, and the daughter is not, is, is not able to be located by, by the mother. Um, so what um, I did was place the song of the gypsy at the beginning of this work to frame the entire work as a story of displacement. So um, uh, removing the overture and just making what I felt was the heart of the piece and putting it right at the beginning and saying this is a story about, about someone being lost. And so the first line in the original Spanish is En Chiclana me crié, En Chiclana me crié. And so now it's, I was born so far from here. Um, so here's Elizabeth Mondragon who, who is singing because her daughter can sing. There's a scene of translation. It's amazing that you're forced as an audience to sit there and hear speeches in Spanish and wait for the English translation to understand what's going on. Um, and I asked Elizabeth without thinking to ask whether she was a native Spanish speaker, uh, which, which she's not. And she has done a bohemian task of learning not only the Spanish, but also learning um, an indigenous um, Mayan dialect um, that, that also is. Maya Capuchique. Yeah. Maya Capuchique. Which you'll hear her speak at the end of this lecture. Thank you. 
very helpful digging through the bill later is um, to find an authentic voice in a piece like this, especially um, for myself as an artistic producer. And part of that journey was folding in other musics, not just uh, Thomas Breton's score, but um, traditional Mexican musics from, from other, other um, parts of the country and other cultural histories. Uh, so I wonder, uh, before Mia sings, if maybe Chrissy and Anna could talk about the other songs we included, Siete Lindo, of course, is very famous, but also the Guacamaya, and then a traditional song from Oaxaca called El Nito. Wow, thank you. That was so incredible, Elizabeth. Thank you. Because they saw us on YouTube and said, "Can you please play 
here in Mount Pleasant as part of the cultural commu community Fandango. And so one of the songs we sang was La Guacamaya. So it literally flew from Miami, from, L from Veracruz to LA, to Miami, to Washington, D.C. So, um, but one of the, the musicians that I interviewed, who's now located out of Barcelona, he said to me, Yes, Son Jarocho comes from the countryside. That's why all the all the musical motifs, all the songs are about birds, are about animals, about local fauna and flora. However, it is such an incredibly complex because there's um, tertiary notes, it's a sesquialtera, so it's all these different um, beats that come from the African, um, the, all these different rhythms that are encounter rhythms that are incorporated in all the diverse um, instrumentation. He said, but you know, we shouldn't be learning it just in the fandangos and on the streets and in the plazas. It should be taught in the conservatory as part of the National Conservatory. It's absurd, borderline of scene, that we're not learning, you know, autochthonous musical forms as, as professional musicians, because he's a professional musician who also plays some harocho. So I thought that was really interesting and, and radical in terms of what you guys are attempting to do here by incorporating traditional genres that can be played in Mount Pleasant on the, on the street side, but also incorporated to uh, Sarsuela, which is a general chico, come large. So that, I was just, I don't want to, you know, hog the stage, so that's my, my talk about La Guacamaya, but I'm happy to talk about other things. With the El Nito, I mean, um, Anna knows a little bit more about El Nito, the origin of the song, but the Virgen de la Soledad in Oaxaca, also is a virgin of, of migration. Somehow, on a mule that's landed in the port of Veracruz, crossed on the mule train, on its way to Guatemala, where the, where the, 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 the protagonist is from, um, Paloma, and the mule dropped dead in Oaxaca, supposedly, and that's where they opened up the, 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 the box and found La Virgen de la Soledad. So she became the patron saint of Oaxaca, which is a colonial center, a really important colonial center, particularly in the 17th century. So the, 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 the basilica, one of the most spectacular and incredibly beautiful basilicas dedicated to the Virgin of Solitude in Oaxaca was supposed to be destined for Guatemala and dropped dead in Oaxaca, the mule dropped dead and then resuscitated once they opened the, um, the, the coffin. So. I mean, I'm sorry, the box. So anyway, that's that's it. That's where El Nito sort of comes from. Okay, so that's why a couple of our main characters are from Oaxaca, <laughs> and um, and El Nito is a song dedicated to. Uh, it's a song by a composer called Mondragon, and Mondragon is from Oaxaca, and uh, <coughs> it's about a song about how the Virgin of Solitude. Uh, text this this young man um as far as Cielito Lindo is concerned we wanted a song that we felt all Mexicans recognized and, and gave a visceral, very visceral sense I was worried about this but then you know um, Ulises and I spoke a lot about this so I'm gonna I'm gonna now since we're talking about music but um Ulises says you know as long as it's not a Disney version <laughs> Cielito Lindo it needs to be very solemn um tranquil and um and so I think that, you know, Lisa has done an amazing job, as you heard, with, with the Solida um, piece adapting this, uh, this, tremendous, this tremendous music. And then uh, being able to incorporate these other songs like uh, El Nito, um, Cielito Lindo, and then, uh, and then La Guacamaya. So, yeah. Um, regarding our conversation, um, 
I don't think I should say too much because I might give a very important part of the story away. <laughs> so uh, uh, about Italy in particular, but uh, um, yeah, it, it was uh, very interesting and uh, at the same time a bit difficult to incorporate um, this um, simpler in the sense of of the harmony because the harmony is simpler than than the original um, Breton. Sarsuela. But it is true that in terms of like dynamics and, and feeling, and, and, and there are other aspects that are, uh, I, I would say, at least as complex in some kind of than in opera. It, it's, it's, I guess it's a little bit like um, modern music production, and you could even say like a lot of uh, different um, popular music genres that you, you say, oh, well, it's four chords, five chords, but then you go into a session uh, the audio recordings, and you see that there are 200 tra different tracks, and uh, uh, it's just that it's not written music. It's it's sounds that are creating that audio recording. It's a different kind of complexion and complexity. So it, it, that also happens with 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 some kind of um, um, and uh, incorporating all the the, 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 the traditional um, Mexican songs also gave the the piece, um, um, a particular, uh, well, it, it, it put, put it like, it gave more of the background, some characters. Mia um. uh, Rojas is going to uh, sing, and at the same time, um, the realities of finding a, a Mexican cast, and then you should be good at that line, well, then we need someone from Oaxaca to do the second guard. Obviously, that wasn't practical either. Um, and uh, we worked very hard to find a, a cast that was capable and able, but also had ties to the Iberian diaspora. Um, but it's still been a great uh, anxiety for me. And I was so touched when Mia and I met uh, to coach the song for the first time when she said she grew up with the song. And of course, that's obvious now to me that this is, that this is not a, a lingua franca that's only particular to Mexico, and that this song lives in her as much as it, it does uh, to, to a Mexican. Um, so, so, so now to, to introduce me, we'll, we'll do this version of CFME.
My, my mentor as a stage director is, is the, the director Peter Sellers, uh, who once said to me, um, and anyone that knows his work will, will understand this immediately, he once said to me that any act of making art is inherently political. There's no way for art to be apolitical. The act of making something is a political act. Um, and I'm wondering um, if we can, as a panel, maybe starting with Luis and Sarah, um, talk about what your craft um, uh, what your craft is, is saying, what it means to be um, designing a wall with, with, with the, the students at the center and to decide what goes on the wall. Um, and then if we can talk about that in all of our, our art forms with, with dance, with poetry, with music. Um, in approaching this project, uh, most of my murals are historical murals that tell stories. And after having meeting with uh, Sarah and Kara and talking about the play and what it was about, I really started looking within myself and looking at how I can approach this composition. And it just uh, kind of like what came to my mind. And I'm pretty much painting a self-portrait of my family. Uh, when we migrated here to the United States in 1986, uh, we came from Nicaragua because of the Civil War, because of the San and then thinking about the, the mother and the little girl that were separated at the border. And that pretty much happened to my little sister. Um, and the, the, the separation between my mom and my sister was very great and very painful. But we had to, our family had to migrate here in stages. So while me and my mom came migrated here to Guatemala, I think Mexico, we came via the bus and stayed in Matamoros for a little bit. And, uh, experiencing the Mexican culture firsthand was very uh, instrumental to me because sometimes in the news we hear about Mexicans being drug dealers, Mexicans being criminals, and rapists. Uh, when I met the Mex uh, Mexican family, they welcomed us into their home, knew nothing about us, didn't know our name, and they just welcomed us in their home and took us in for about three months, I believe. Um, and because of them, we were able to uh, cross the I think, Rio, de Gra Rio Grande. Uh, in some lifeboats, um, so the tube that you see in, uh, uh, you see like a six flag, little two little black tubes on my tire, and experiencing that, and I always looked at my mom and how she just, you know, kept thinking about my little sister and how uh, that really affected her, not only for the time being, but for the uh, for the years to come. Like I think we were separated for about two years, if I'm mistaken, uh, I'm mistaken, about two two and a half years. Uh, so in, in looking at that, also the other thing that was that really uh, hit home was the icon of uh, Our Lady of Solitude. And um, when I first started doing art, I was in the street. I used to do graffiti art, uh, Maryland, Virginia, D.C., Ohio, and other states. And it was I was never a religious person. Um, you know, I was kind of like a hoodlum. It was just being around the street and doing everything that I could. And I tried to stay away from religion and God in general. But it just happens that the first icon, the first realistic figure that I ever painted was Mary. And it was Mary given, um, like extending a, a symbol of a cross, which is means hope and also means womb. Because the cross is something that, are, if you think about Christianity, is the only religion in which the God that we serve, it's not seated on the throne, it's not seated on something very high, it's actually on the cross being crucified. And um, I, used, I often use um, family members and friends in part of my viewers. I also painted Sarah several times. And um, I also decided to use one of my, um, the little girl that's holding the little swallow bird. Um, it's actually a friend of mine, one of my best uh, 
girlfriends that I, that I had since I was childhood. And her family had a similar story to me. They were separated. And now we see the fruit of this immigrant family came here. Uh, they're doing very well. And when it comes to the bird, uh, it seems like we have a wall. And if you really think about a bird, whenever they're wounded, they can't fly, they can only walk. And unfortunately, as people, sometimes we are like wounded birds. We can't fly over the border. We have to walk towards it and try to find a way to get over it. So I thought about those symbolisms in the, in the works of art. And the other thing that uh, I was like, how can I represent more than just the Mexican country? Because the Mexican flag, but migration is very universal. So that the next thing that came to mind was actually using handprints of people, uh, youth, and also staff members. That was a, um, either experience uh, migration, have to come from other country, or no friends. Because if you look at this room here, uh, some of you might have been born here, but everybody I'm pretty sure has a friend or someone that has migrated from another country. <coughs> and I can tell you probably uh, a, a similar story. So this was a very uh, unique project, and I think it was really, um, once we had that meeting, it was very easy to come up with a composition that really spoke to the play, and it really spoke to my life. And um, I think uh, including the youth and also having Sarah assisting and putting her skills to, to work, it was also very instrumental because he makes it very inclusive, not only immigrants, but also people that are happy to Thanks, Luis. Um, yeah, so I was very intimidated when I was asked to be a part of this project. Um, I was caught up in the notion that, well, I don't have any experience with immigration. And then I started thinking, more deeply about the experience that I have had. Um, and my father was born on a Cherokee reservation in North Carolina, and I haven't seen him since I was about 13 years old. So since then, I've had this kind of void in my life. Where am I from? What is my culture? What language like, could I be speaking right now? And I've never known that. So through my artwork, um, I've done a lot of self-portraiture. I've done a lot of portraiture of my father, and just trying to understand what identity means. And then I thought, okay, like I can take these experiences and this artistic practice that I've had and share it with students and ask them questions and, and see you know, if they have any personal experience like I have or if they have any direct experience to immigration from South America or Mexico. Um, and for me, this is really a huge project in my career because I've only done a handful of murals before. Before that, it was just me spray painting in an alley with my friends, <laughs> casually. <laughs> um, so it's, it's an honor to take those skills and, and apply them to something really meaningful and something that can affect change in our community and the country as a whole. So it's an honor. that I wanted to share is how expressive forms of culture, and in this instance dance and music, really help us negotiate uh, borders of who belongs, how we can literally carve up a space, how, how we can literally carve up a space to inhabit in a country that continues to deny the presence of millions of people. So I, it was, I was fascinated to look at your corporeal reactions and affective, you know, the ways that you transmitted some sort of affective energy to just the singing, right? How music took you to different places, some people were singing along softly, 
um, in the music was in, in ways nostalgic, um, or it was, although it is normally festive, this particular uh, iteration of Cielito uh, Lindo, it's not as festive, and it makes sense with once you go see La Paloma at the Wall, um, you understand why. But I'm fascinated by, by how our affective attachments become politicized, and they mobilize us to, they literally move us to do things, right? And I'm also very interested in how um, certain sounds or, or ways of moving becomes policed, or becomes, um, how certain forms of moving or certain sounds becomes way, uh, become way, a way of controlling and containing communities, but also how the same sounds or movements allow us to really expand that. And I'm always fascinated when I moved to the United States to, to just walk around LA or when I moved to DC and then go to restaurants and go to the restroom and then hear Mexican music or hear, um, you know, um, reggaeton or whatever it might be depending on the city, but that's how we literally inhabit these spaces and then, you know, I want to just dance along. And in particular, particularly, uh, my involvement with Corazón Folklorico uh, literally means uh, heart. I say I dance with heart, I dance with Corazón, has allowed me to continue to expand the spaces that I can have it and I occupy and to share my art form with this community. And um, yes, so we want you to welcome me to it. And if you want to, I mean, it just occurs to me that we're Spanish. Is there any poetry more than Spanish language poetry that has affected political change, that's been involved in political change, and maybe you can speak about that poetry? It's politics. hard to talk about poetry in Latin America without talking about political change. It's in, um, I'm just going to bring what I've been thinking about these days. Um, um, for example, in uh, 1957, Langston Hughes. Um, who was, as you know, the heart of the Harlem Renaissance. Um, he was actually a great translator, and he translated um, Federico Garcia Lorca from Spain. He translated Nicolas Guillén from Cuba, from the Negrismo movement in Cuba. And he also translated Gabriel Mistral, who was uh, the first um, Nobel laureate of Latin America. And it's very interesting, his translation received very, very little attention. I found a review um, in the Hudson Review in like uh, 1958 that um, basically said it was a you know, it wasn't interesting work at all, and just poo-pooed Hughes and poo-pooed Mistral, and these are just stories about children and breastfeeding and mothers. And then I found um, another um, um, more recent critical piece that said that basically Langston Hughes's work was when he turned to Gabriela Mistral was innocuous because she was it was politically innocuous because she was talking about children and you know I think right just right now for example our Puerto Rican population has the highest infant mortality rate of, of any population in the United States so so I think of um, you know the need for maternal health and and, um, and healthy children then who are born, healthy babies who are born. And it's surprising to me that anyone could think that these poems that Mistran dedicated to maternal health and, and the need to feed um, infants as politically innocuous. So my point is, is that even what is perceived as children's poetry and rhyming are actually um, 
how we learn to empathize and exist with one another. And, and that's social formation, right? That's human, that's what makes us human. Um, even more so, I mean, animals do this too, right? It's, it's, it, it's, a, it's what gives us soul. And so, um, um, so any, any gesture towards the other is a, is a, is a gesture of, of political acti activity. And poetry is that, music is that, the arts are that, you coming here tonight is that. And so, um, I also just point out, because I'm obsessed with interconnectedness, that what Anna just did was connect from U Street to the Cotton Club, to the Gabrielle Mistral poetry competition, to La Preda del Colobar. Well, that's the other thing. When you start um, looking at these works, you know, like, facing history is an act of love and because you're facing others from the past. And so when you start, you know, reading, wow, Langston Hughes was reading Gabriela Mistral and you translated her, and that, that, that work basically, I, I've literally read that it was buried. And, um, you know, what an enormous gesture on the part of Langston Hughes, but then, you know, Moses Mendes, this Sephardic Jew from Portugal, was collaborating with Handel on Susana's oratorio. You know, that these are all these tremendous collaborative efforts um, to, to, bring, to bring these pieces together, that, that even though Franco, for example, in the form of the Sarsuela, tried to make it this reified, hard, centralized form, that in fact it was in, in and of itself very heterogeneous and um, of many, many different peoples. So. These conversations are always too short, but there's so much to say. Can I go ahead and actually open it up for questions? Because because I feel like um, there, there might be a lot, a lot we can eliminate a lot. Can I just say short questions? Questions? Um, so that we can get as much out of our panel as possible. Thank you for this informative event. My name is Katia. With regard to the origin of Sonado, so it started, please, and indicted by the Santo Oficio, which is the Holy Inquisition in Mexico 300 years ago, with the original, with the song that then inspired 300 years later, what is its current Sonado um, La Bamba, and it's called the Chuchumbe, and it's a song also sort of responding to Timothy's um, question about the political nature, the inherent political nature of art. And this is a song that was supposedly brought by Afro-Cuban sailors to the port of Veracruz that then spread across the Viceroyalty and was indicted 17 times. So if you go to the archives in Mexico City, you'll find 17 different documents indicting people singing El Chuchumbe. And why would they indict this music? It's not just music, it's music. It's, there's various instruments, some of which are Afro, um, are indigenous in origin, some of which are Afro-Caribbean. And then it's also um, a call and response. So Sonaroche is necessarily a dialogic music. Um, there's also the zapateado, which, um, which is also a percuss. The, the drums were outlawed. Um, um, so that way, you know, the sort of Cuban Afro-drumming that you're used to, or like the Brazilian Afro-drumming, doesn't really exist. It exists in the feet. And um, so that's really important. I know there's, there's some clapping in, in the beginning of the zarzuela. And that's really important. But um, so, what I think is interesting, what did Echuchumbe do that was so horrible that the Mexican and Spanish, that the Spanish officials would want to um, denounce it 17 times? Well, it was criticizing the clergy for abuses, 
for the abuses of, um, and the, one of the first and most prominent lines is about a priest who was seen singing, lifting up his habits, his sultana, to show his chuchumbe. So chuchumbe becomes a metaphor for a sexual part of the body, and it becomes a metaphor for movement, but also um, a way in which um, the, the, the subordinated um, identities and peoples, the castes, the castes of Mexico City were able to rebel against it. So, but, but what was so... It's part of the... I'm sorry, yes, well, La Guacamaya is one song in this genre that emerged from this song 300 years ago that was denounced by the Inquisition. So that's what I'm getting at, this sort of trans, um, the, 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 this diachronic movement of bodies and of sounds. And so now this particular genre is sung at the border in what's called Encuentro El Fandango Fronterizo, where people are positioned on either side of the U.S.-Mexican border in Parque de la Amistad, where the Sarcella is situated. And literally, they're calling and responding on either side of the border. And Ana was lucky enough to go. I haven't been able to go. Um, and they're zapateando. So there's a sonic, physical, musical, call and response across the border. And that's a very important artistic, <coughs> musical act of denunciation. That is not, but what I'm saying is that the musical genre of which it participates, two of the songs, Cielito Lindo and um, La Guacamaya, are, are, are part of this genre that comes from 300 years of history of denunciation. So it's a simple genre that permits language and that permits participation. And what you said about La Guacamaya, Cielito Lindo being incredibly somber, but it's one song that anyone who knows anything about Latin American or Mexican culture, it just brings a smile to your face. It's, it's, just, it's incredibly melancholic, but incredibly nostalgic. So that language of nostalgia that is communicated in, in what's a very traditional song is beautifully mastered and incorporated by Ana and by Ulises in the, in the, in the Sarsuela. And that's the addition that you won't see in the original version. You know, the story of the Americas is a story of the separation of families. Uh, that's what the transatlantic slave trade was. <laughs> so, you know, we can talk about freedom and all of these things, but the engine that drove um, the economies of the slave trade um, of, of the entire European and American world was the traffic in human bodies. And at the heart of that was the separation of children from their mothers, brothers from their sisters, the separation of lovers, the separation of peoples from their lands. And, and this continued for several hundred years, and we still experience the melancholic and tragic legacies of, of, of such um, institutionalized separation of, of, human, of humans from their families. And so, um, so I think that, um, uh, to face that is very important in all of its in all of its um, dimensions of horror. At the same time, I mean, the human soul contains all of those dimensions of horror. At the same time that it contains all of its dimensions of love and beauty, you know, it's who it's who we are as people. And so, um, uh, I think as long as you know, turning to this question of how do we not lose our souls. Um, Look into somebody else's face. Uh, that's I think that's a foundation of not of of someone's of the soul. Recognize the infinite particularity of every single human being, um, because they are infinite, as infinite as the stars in our galaxies. Each human is that, 
And, um, and I think that the foundation of that, what's so beautiful about the theatrical form is that it, it really is a face-to-face -face and body-to-body -body form. And that was really important to us, actually, in the selection of, of this work in English. Um, that we wanted it to, the protagonist of this work, not to necessarily be language, and, um, but, but to be the, the human experience of empathy for, for these characters that are on the stage. There is a moment, you know, as you heard when, when Paloma says a line in, in Maya Cacchique, which is from the um, Guatemalan um, uh, highlands, and, and she, she basically says, uh, well, I'm not going to tell you what she says. <laughs> but, but the translator can't translate this. She can't translate this. And so, um, you know, it's, it's kind of a moment of an ethical falling out. There is a limit to your understanding of the other in, in, a, in an intellectual way. And, and so at that point, you need to understand them as, a, as another warm body there that just needs to be embraced and their needs need to be met. Right? Whether, whether there's a cognitive understanding of that other human being is irrelevant of, at that point. I always tell this story, I was in the middle of a translation conference and, and I heard these foxes, this family of foxes outside my window that woke me up in the middle of the night. And I heard these foxes talking to one another in the night and I thought, God, I can't translate that. <laughs> what are they saying? You know? And then the next, my next thought was, you know, like in this between sleeping and consciousness and unconsciousness, I thought, I can't translate them, but I can hold them. I can hold them. Right? And so, and so that's what we need. Some great um, uh, creators of theater have been closer to that source, like Bertolt Brecht, who is very action-driven, but it's still a leap of faith. And, and at the Institute, um, outreach has become increasingly important to us, and we have a lot of outreach involved in this project, not just um, making sure that our wall was, was built by people, not, not on the inside, that we went outside in the community to create the wall, but also um, we have a Samba Rocha Pandango event on the 16th of March at uh, Haiti's restaurant in, um, on Mount Pleasant Street. Um, uh, from 4 to 8, you can come at 4 and learn how to play the Havana and um, stay for the food and making music. Um, and, and that's been very important to us. We're also working with Immigrant Families Together, which is a nonprofit that does many things, one of which is uh, provide resources to um, get uh, uh, parents separated from their children out of detention. Um, so at the, at the performances, we traditionally take a, a offering, an offering, we take a contribution for, <laughs> it's an offering, uh, for the end series, which of course we're still very happy to do, but, but for these performances, um, we're going to be taking um, collection for the parents coming together, and they'll also be there for an added talkback, which will be at the 31st after the show. Uh, particularly about issues of immigration, immigration lawyers and representatives from the nonprofit. So, in our small way, we're trying to make sure that that there's an action point past this production. Um, it's not something that that we can do in a large way, but it's something it's a step that, that we can take. Um, I, I, I think 
Can, is there time for more comments? Okay, so with regard to the question posed as to what, how can we translate this into something meaningful, something and into a, a affirmative direct action, that's a, that's a phenomenal question. It's a difficult question because it's one, as a professor at an elite research one institution, I ask myself all the time, what on earth? You know, I'm talking about art and film and cinema and music, and how can I translate that into something affirmative and direct and immediate? So um, and this happened to me a few years ago, and I designed a course um, with a community-engaged component where my students who at, at upper levels of Spanish, not all are native speakers, many are um, about half sort of heritage speakers and the other half have learned you know, Spanish in the university, where they would translate for children in detention or children who were undocumented and were seeking asylum. So that was the, the, the part of the course that I insisted, um, that, I, that I made, where we would interact with a community organization, which was in this case Catholic Charities, who were giving um, pretty much free legal advice to, um, to children um, who were here on their own. And um, what was interesting for me, um, one, I mean, this migration is, is, is not, you know, this year. I mean, with the political administration that we have now, they act as if it's some sort of the urgent thing that's happened in the last few years. Central American migrants have been coming for 15 years. At least, I mean, where it's been, and it's been increasing, you know, so the, there's been films that have been made almost um, 11, 12, 13 years ago with regard to the um, undocumented child uh, migrant crisis. And so what I wanted to do with this class was to focus on the kids. And so um, what was interesting to me when I did this is I, I one particular, I've taught it now seven times. And, um, and every time it gets more and more interesting because the changes in, in migration, the, well, the laws change. So, you know, the way we inform the lawyers, inform the, the, the undergrads, and then there's also different levels of um, competency in Spanish, and they all say to me, how can I possibly translate? And, and I say, if this organization didn't need you, they wouldn't be begging for me to send students there. So um, one of the affirmative results was the change, and, and this goes back to what Anna was saying about seeing people. Seeing people for the first time. South Florida, where I teach, has a huge migrant population, and my migrant population. So it's not just about not speaking Spanish or English, it's about not speaking the different, um, the different languages in, in, in Maya, where the Piquiche, Cachiquel, um, all, all the variations. And so one of my students, I'm just going to take two more seconds to talk about an anecdote, um, and, and my own radical transformation, he came into my class and he was lost. And I knew he was not the right, because the class, when I teach that class, there's always the do-gooders and the sort of self-selecting group. Nobody necessarily wants to do community engagement or any sort of community work, right? Unless they're already uh, inclined towards that. And so he picked it because of the time slot and didn't know at all what he was doing. It was a big sort of frat boy jock. I thought, oh God. Oh, okay, let me see what I can do with him. And he never spoke. And I came in with all this baggage of, of, of prejudices, of assuming that he was lost. And indeed, he was lost. And um, when it became time to do the community engagement, I said, you know, you're going to have to interpret. I did sort of like, you know, um, a, 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 an in-service with regard to cultural sensibility, um, that you're working with children. A lot of them can't describe what they're saying, and you're there to advocate for them, whatever your political inclinations are. And he's like, OK, OK, yeah, 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 I'll do this. 
And he came back to me at the end of the semester and gave one of the most, I mean, he, he literally had on his laptop every day his diet, what, how many dumbbell, how many exercises he was going to do. I thought, oh God, what's going to happen here? And the transformation that happened in this one individual, which also taught me to stop thinking in certain kinds of ways about certain kinds of people. Because by the end of the semester, he said, he gave this beautiful presentation about how he was interpreting for a nine-year-old Honduran child. And he's like, I, I just, I felt like I couldn't do enough because my Spanish wasn't good enough. And the child was crying next to him. And he just was mobilized to do more. And then he begged me to help more and donate more this time. So he went from a jock to political activist in about, I don't know, 10 weeks. And so lots of action can happen. And art is incredibly powerful in all of its modalities. It's one of the most powerful, powerful, um, the potentiality of art in all its forms and its modalities is infinite. And um, so I presented an infinite amount, I mean, various diverse cultural forms, but then incorporated that directly with engagement with the community to put a face to the people they were seeing on the screens and the documentaries and in the plays that they were they were watching. So I think that what Timothy and, and, and Anna are doing and here in the in-series is, is gorgeous, it's beautiful, and I think it has its own potentiality. I just do like quickly two things. Obviously as a professor and as a, as a dancer, don't undermine the power. Let us not undermine the power of imagining otherwise. Right? right? And also of uh, the power of representation of seeing this, seeing and hearing these stories. I mean, if you just were transported, wherever you were transported, here in Cielito Lindo, right? Imagine what would happen um, if, if we allow our community to see itself represented. Not on TV, not on that Netflix show that they're about to cancel, right? But here, and they have that fandango. So I think it really talks about bringing the community together. I want, I want to be respectful of the Institute's hospitality, so, so I think that's it perfect place to wrap it up by saying um, the, the power of imagining other possibilities, um, which in a sense is what this whole thing has been about. Um, thank you for coming. The show opens the 23rd of two weeks at Gala Hispanic Theater. <laughs> um, it's the 23rd and the 30th at 8 p.m., the 24th and the 31st uh, at 2 p.m. Uh, the Fandango event is um, the 16th at 4 p.m. at Hades Restaurant. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm sure you can find out on this afterwards if you have any, any questions. Um, thanks for coming. Thank you, wonderful panelists. Thanks for listening to this episode of Intune, the in-series podcast. You can find more information about performances of La Paloma at the Wall on our website and also about our March 16th free community Fandango event to be held at Hades Restaurant on Mount Pleasant Street. All information is online at our website, www.inseries.org. You can also find us on Facebook backslash inseries or wherever you upload your podcasts. Remember, Rabindranath Tagore tells us that civility is the first act of art. Go out into the world and make the world more civil through your art. <laughs>